Well, my, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, uh, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. I'll give you some time to get there. So if you uh, are new today, we're glad that you're here and, uh, and visiting with us. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And kudos to Pastor Scott, who did a fantastic job last week. I got to listen to uh, your sermon, Scott, and it was just, uh, it was great. Awesome on the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Uh, Jesus' hair and Mary's feet or something like that. So anyway. <laughs> so here at Substance Church, we take the gospel seriously, but not ourselves. So there you go. Um, so, so we've been going through the gospel of John and prior to this passage that I'm preaching on this morning, Jesus has just been anointed for burial by Mary. And word about Lazarus being raised from the dead is spreading rapidly. And Jerusalem is packed with people for the Passover. The Passover, if you don't know, it was a time of celebration to celebrate when God delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh by the blood of the lamb. And so the city is just booming with people. The atmosphere is also tense with the Pharisees waiting for the opportune moment to arrest Jesus. They were threatened by Lazarus and how the news of his miracle was causing the Jewish people to check out who Jesus was and even more so, welcome him with open arms. This news traveled fast among the burgeoning crowds who were in town from, for the Passover. And here's where we want to pick it up at, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. Read along with me in your Bibles. We have some free Bibles back there. If you want one, take one, or follow along in your electronic device. We usually, we use the ESV here, English Standard Version. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world, the world has gone after him. Verse 20, now among those 
who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this opening illustration I'm gonna share with you comes out of what we do here at Substance Church, the pastors and their wives, the elders and their wives, we get together and we have a little fun. We meet for a, a dinner every four to six weeks. And then this particular dinner, we were, um, I was sharing about my childhood. And uh, throughout, probably in the middle of the dinner, I think everybody at this dinner was about in tears. Um, I don't know if that's gonna happen with you as I share this story, but anyway. So uh, Zach, Scott, look out here, man. So when I was two and a half years old, I was diagnosed with asthma. Most of my childhood, I spent a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, being rushed to the hospital because I was having breathing problems. Somewhere along the way, and I was about probably seven, eight years old, my parents decided to send me to camp. But it wasn't just any camp. No, and this is where it gets to, we were sharing, I was sharing my story of camp. It was asthma camp. Now I know some of you have grown up in the church and you've experienced church camp and all that stuff. Well, I had the privilege of experience asthma camp. 
a camp that was focused on educating kids on their health condition. And no, Scott, they did not have any signs posted, take it easy or you'll get wheezy. (laughs) And no, Zach, (laughs) we didn't run the 100-yard dash. We just didn't run. (laughs) But every morning and evening, us asthmatic kids would line up to receive our medication, our breathing treatments, our shots. The nurses lined up, ready to do their job. But I also remember learning kickboxing. I also remember going canoeing and hiking through the woods, but I don't remember running a lot. Anyways, where I'm going with this ridiculous illustration is what I do remember most is I remember most about the camp experience was that no matter what activity I did, and maybe this is just how camps work, I would learn about my asthma, what to do in case I had an attack, to stay calm, breathing techniques, so on. I would learn to move in kickboxing and then I would learn about asthma. I would learn, I would do a craft and then they would teach me about asthma. They were focused on educating kids about their asthma. Well, in our passage this morning, we're gonna see that Jesus was also focused. He wasn't focused on asthma. He was focused on something far more important. And that was one thing, the cross. From Jesus' birth to his death, he was all about the cross. The hour of the cross had come. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. It was not a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. It was not a golden scepter in his hand, but nine-inch spikes driven into his hands and feet. And it was not an earthly throne, but the throne of the cross. Jesus was focused on the cross. So here's what John wants us to see from this passage this morning. That Jesus, our cross-centered king, came to die so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but joyfully and sacrificially live for him, no longer ruled by Satan, but ruled by Christ. That's a mouthful, so let me repeat it again. Jesus, if you're taking notes, Jesus, our cross-centered king, came to die so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but joyfully and sacrificially live for him, no longer ruled by Satan, but ruled by Christ. I broke our passage down into three questions. The first two we will camp out in, but the last one, we're going to land the plane quickly. First question, why did Jesus come to die on the cross? Second question, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? And third question, what is our response? And John tells us, 
hear that there was a great crowd. So read along with me once again in 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Verse 16 Verse 18, the, ver the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole, the, the world has gone after him. The whole world for them is wherever they were living under Roman rule. So earlier in Jesus' ministry in John chapter six, a large crowd was fed. Do you remember that? A large crowd was fed by Jesus. They wanted to seize Jesus and they wanted to make him king. But now in our passage, we see Jesus enter on his own into Jerusalem, claiming his rightful place as king. But little did this crowd know that Jesus came into Jerusalem not to set up an earthly throne, but to establish a heavenly one. See, a suffering Messiah, from the Jewish perspective, was unthinkable to a Jew. Think of it this way. You're watching your favorite movie. You know your hero. You know what's going to happen. You're watching your favorite movie. Here comes the climactic point of the movie. Your hero dies. And you're like, well, that sucked. Right? I'm not going to pay. Why did I pay to see that? My hero dies? That's kind of the idea here. For them, the Messiah was to come in, conquer their enemies, kick butt, take names, give them a new name, send them where they belong. A victorious king who would sacrifice his life didn't make sense. It didn't make sense at first for his followers Verse 16, it left the Pharisees completely clueless. Verse 19, and in Johannine irony, saying a lot more than what they were saying, this same crowd who wanted Jesus as their deliverer would days later be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. And the Pharisees were clueless. This is a most telling statement where they were saying more than they realized. John chapter 12, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They were partly right. Because Jesus would charge, because here's the thing, Jesus, they thought, would charge the city with militant force, taking his enemies down. But instead, Jesus humbly laid his life down, giving his life for his enemies, for you and for me. 
Jesus did not come to set them free from government and religious oppression. He came to set them free from spiritual oppression. He came to set us free from spiritual oppression. See, word was getting out about Jesus, and here is where we get to our first question. Why did Jesus come to die on the cross? Look with me there in John chapter 12, verses 20 and 24. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, we're not told by John if these Greeks which were really God-fearing Gentiles. They're not necessarily from Greece, but they're God-fearing Gentiles that came for the Passover to worship. And they couldn't worship in the temple. No, they had to worship in the courts for those who were not Jews. But it doesn't tell us whether they got to see Jesus or not because that's not the point. Jesus responds to them in a Interesting way, did you notice it? In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus then goes on to share this mini parable. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. I like what the New Living Translation says. It says, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of lives. What was Jesus saying in this mini parable? Jesus was speaking of his death to come. Jesus was saying, I am the grain of wheat and I must die so that a harvest of lives may be changed for his glory, for my glory. Jesus was letting these Gentiles know, as well as us, that to see Jesus, to experience life in him, is made possible only through his death. How wonderful. I mean, Jesus' death produces many new lives. Some of you are sitting here today because of what Christ has done. Those of you who are here because you're curious of what Christ has done. Those who will or who have trusted in Christ are his plentiful harvest of lives, changed by the gospel. Why did Jesus come to die on the cross? Listen, his life, death, and resurrection makes our life in him possible. So now Jesus talks about what this looks like in his kingdom. Lives that are transformed by the gospel. 
John chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus suggesting that he's some cosmic killjoy and that we can't enjoy our lives in his creation? Of course not. Jesus is saying something much deeper here. He is saying this, whoever delights in the things of this world more than delighting in me will have no life at all. Because in me is true life. And whoever delights in me more than this world will be willing to sacrifice it all for me. What's the implication here? Sacrifice and self-denial for Christ. Because of what Christ has done. We see this call to sacrifice and self-denial elsewhere in the Bible. And if you want to turn with me there, you can. You don't have to, but you can. Matthew 10, verse 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now let's be honest here. We hear these verses, we hear these words of Jesus and of Paul, and we think, well, that's for the super spiritual Christian, whatever that means. That's for the super spiritual people. That's for the missionary who wants to just take the world by storm and change it and transform it. And don't get me wrong, we need people like that. That's for someone else. I get it. But listen, this is the call for all believers in Jesus. For the dad who was on his last nerve with his kids and he's wondering if they're ever gonna be quiet so they can have peace and quiet. Lots of quiet. This is also the call for the single mom who doesn't know if she will be able to make ends meet. Whether Christ abandoned her. This call is for the faithful believer who's trying to build relationships with his coworkers or her coworkers and neighbors and share the love of Christ with them. It's not about making this huge step of obedience. Please hear me. It is not about making a huge step of obedience. It's about making little steps of obedience. It doesn't happen in the mountaintop experiences all the time. It happens in following Jesus in everyday life. 
Listen, Jesus didn't die so that we would, that, so that we could become better versions of ourselves. He died so that, and he rose then three days later and he ascended so that our lives would be transformed and continue to be transformed. And that by his grace, our lives would begin to look like his. More patient, more kind, more loving, more gentle. The gospel is not about seeking self-help. It's admitting to ourselves that we desperately need help to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. What on earth could compel us to live such sacrificial lives? It's joy. Listen, it was for absolute joy that Jesus sacrificed himself for us and bore our punishment for our rebellion. Hebrews 12, two says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for us, satisfied God's just wrath. And he did it for his future joy and reward in the Father. And his joy is what compelled him to endure such wrath. Apart from God's grace, self-denial, sacrifice, and even our own obedience will be done out of duty rather than delight. The impossible will lead to despair rather than future hope in Christ. Listen, if we try to deny ourselves based on what we do for Jesus, rather than what Jesus has already done for us, our denial of self will become a joy killer rather than a joy producer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship said this about our self-denial. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Believer, is self-denial and sacrifice too hard for you? Are you focused on the act rather than the one that you're doing it for, who is Christ? Ask the Lord to let his desires by his Holy Spirit grip you more than your own desires. Jesus calls us to be cross-centered followers. Listen, without the grace of God, our self-denial will turn into legalism, which will feed our pride rather than help us grow. Or on the other hand, our self-denial will lead to our condemnation where we'll be focused on what we have not done for Christ. I haven't done, I haven't done enough, God. I haven't done enough. Forgive me. Jesus came to die so that we would die to ourselves. Well, die to what, you ask? By God's grace, die to your dreams. 
I know, that's hard. Die to your desires, good or bad, that have become demands in your life. And you know that because you'll have conflict in your life because of those demands. Die to your control of others. Die to your bitterness. Die to your comforts and the easiness of life. Die to wanting acceptance from others or seeing others as seeing yourself as more important than others. Die to envy. What are we doing there? We are letting every moment of life the challenges that we face, and we're saying, God, I need your grace. Come and help me. Give me wisdom. Help me to die to the bitterness in my life. Help me to die to the envy. That's what we're doing. First Peter 2.24 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, what? Die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus, our cross-centered king, came to die so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but joyfully and sacrificially live for him. Second question, what did Jesus' death accomplish on the cross? Look with me there in verses 27 through 31. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Did you catch what Jesus says there in verse 31? Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Here we get a sneak peek of what Jesus' death on the cross resulted in. It will result in judgment. And it will result in the ruler of this world cast out. Who is this ruler of this world? Who is he? It's Satan. Now, usually when we talk about the cross, we talk about how Jesus is our substitute who endured all of God's wrath, his unleashing wrath onto his son by becoming a sin offering for us. And at this point, that great exchange takes place where Jesus takes all of our sin and doesn't become sinful. He remains holy. And then in exchange, he gives us all of his righteousness for those who would repent and believe in him. But in this passage, we get a glimpse of what happened to Satan at the cross. That's right, what happened to Satan at the cross. In some circles, we don't like to talk about Satan. We don't like to talk about the devil. In some traditions, they talk about Satan so much, you're like, who do you worship? Do you worship Satan? Do you worship Jesus? Who's more powerful? The triune God of the universe or Satan? 
Or maybe we're like every, under, every other rock, there's a devil, there's a demon. The devil made me do it. That sort of thing, that sort of talk. But Satan is not the opposite of God. And biblically speaking, Satan is real. He is our chief enemy. And he wants to steal from us our joy in following Jesus. He wants us to doubt God's goodness for our lives. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says that the God, little g, of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, the Bible says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in 1 Peter 5, 1, describes Satan as a roaring lion, hunting his prey, seeking someone to devour. He's an enemy. He's our chief enemy. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Jesus' death and implied his resurrection and ascension solidified Satan's defeat and assures us our victory. Amen? Praise the Lord. If you are in Christ, if you have said, I want to follow you, Jesus, because only in you can I have life, then Satan's lies, his accusations, his scheming are no longer, no longer have power to rule over your life. The Holy Spirit rules your heart and reminds you of God's truth. And why? Because Jesus has cast out the ruler of this world. Amen? When I pastored my first church, it was a church plant. I didn't plant it, somebody else did. There was this elderly lady who right away when we met her, she said, I don't have any money, but I'll watch your kids for free. And we're like, cool, date night, awesome. And, but she had been beaten up so much by the church. She had been beaten up so much by her feelings of shame and guilt and all the lies that she was listening to. That she called me up, and this would not be just one phone call, this was several phone calls. And she would tell me that Satan was telling her that she was unworthy. And she asked, what should I do? I said, tell Satan that you were unworthy, but because of Jesus, you have been made worthy in him. And Satan no longer rules over your life. Jesus does. So if you're here today and you struggle with shame and condemnation, Jesus rules over your life, not the enemy. Jesus, our cross-centered king, came to die so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but joyfully and sacrificially live for him, no longer ruled by Satan, but now ruled by Christ. 
Church, we can joyfully and sacrificially live for Jesus because Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death, that is us, were subject to lifelong slavery. Church, we can with great joy and sacrifice live for Jesus because through his death, through his crucifixion, through the sacrifice of himself, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. That is good news. How should we respond? We can respond with hope because the one who is our hope Jesus has defeated Satan who tries to steal our hope. And when Jesus returns, he will completely destroy our defeated enemy. Listen to me. Our hope is not in the process of following Jesus. Our hope is in a person and his name is Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying there? Our hope is not in the process of following Jesus. We are going to fail. We are imperfect disciples following a perfect God, trusting in a perfect Savior. So that means when you follow Jesus, and things don't go well in your life, and maybe things are not going well in your life, and things are actually getting worse instead of better, it does not mean that God is any less faithful in your life. It doesn't not mean that God is any less good in your life. Christy McClellan, Professor of Williamson College says this about a lost sheep, giving some background on um, the context of lost sheep. Going back to that story of when Jesus shares about the parable of the shepherd who finds the lost sheep in the field. So with the sheep, she said, is the sheep is wandering around and when it wanders, it actually gets to a point where it realizes it's not supposed to be where it's at. And so what that sheep does is it it hunkers down and it waits for his loving shepherd to come and get him. Maybe some of you are here today and you've been wandering You've been wandering from the fold of God. Your hearts are wandering. Maybe they're wandering during this sermon. I don't know. But Jesus, the loving shepherd, wants you to hunker down. 
Stay put. He will come and get you. Repent and believe in him once more. Following Jesus is hard. It's not easy, but we have a good shepherd that will then pick us up, put us on his shoulder, and carry us to safety and carry us home. Another way that we can respond is with sacrifice of our time, our talent, and treasure. And many of you do that, Substance Church, and we are grateful. So thank you. But maybe some of you haven't taken that step. I want to encourage you to do so. Maybe that next step is membership. I don't know. To follow Jesus. To love because he first loved us. See, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm sacrificed on the cross, he's saying, will draw all people to myself. Lastly, we can respond with grace-fueled obedience to follow him because only through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, do we get to obey. No longer ruled by our own desire or by Satan, but ruled by Jesus, our perfect king. Our obedience is possible because Jesus perfectly obeyed from the cradle to the cross. His righteousness is our righteousness. His prayer life is our prayer life. And lastly, we get to respond as believers in Jesus Christ to the communion table, to the table that's set before us. And for those of you that have not embraced Christ, who have not repented and believed, we ask that you just sit there in your seat. The table is for believers. And we pray that you would contemplate what has been shared today, the good news of the gospel, so that you can join us at the table of communion and participate. The communion table reminds us that because of what Jesus has done through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we now have a defeated enemy. And Jesus calls us to joyful and sacrificial obedience to him, to proclaim his gospel until he comes again. In 1 Corinthians, Chapter 11. We're left instructions here in leading through communion. First Corinthians, Chapter 11. 23, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he 
also took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, the band, the worship team, the ushers can come forward. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you. Our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can come to the table and be reminded of, Lord, not only your sacrifice and how you paid for our sin, but how you have defeated the enemy now and one day will completely defeat the enemy. Thank you, Lord, that we are reminded that it's only in your perfect obedience by your spirit that we can obey you and live our lives for you. Humble us, Lord, as we come to the table. Fill us, Lord, with your grace and mercy. Refresh our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.